All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to come together to worship you and to praise you and to be reminded of your greatness and to just experience the joy of worshiping you. Uh, we thank you for this time to hear your word and to learn your word. We pray that you'd help us to just understand your word clearly and to, uh, to process it well, to think through it well, and to, to know what your plans are for the future, Lord. We pray that uh, you would bless us with understanding and that moreover, you'd bless us with intimacy with you. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we're continuing our series called the GCF Vision. The vision, or the GCF vision, is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, or at least not since Greg was teaching in RCF at Wright State. And uh, so in this series, I'm trying to explain what exactly the GCF vision is. The GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core, I would say there's, there's five of them. Uh, number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and most importantly, well, most lacking presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So we've been on subsection five uh, for, for a few weeks now. And so we are, this is part three of problems with pessimistic eschatology. So in this little uh, examination, we've been looking at three main passages of scripture that cause people to buy into pessimistic eschatology. And, you know, eschatology is just what a, uh, what a person believes the Bible says about the future. But a lot of people today have a, a very negative view of gospel progress and what it's going to be in the future, and the Bible just doesn't teach that. But there's three main passages that people tend to think teach that. Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, and 2 Thessalonians 2. Two weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 24. Last week, we surprisingly finished the book of Revelation, and today we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2. So if, if you miss either of the last two weeks and you're interested, you can check those out on our website or our YouTube channel or our Spotify. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 2. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 12 um, because that's, that's, the part that has, that's the part that's prophecy. That's the part that was about the future, at least in the time it was written. So let's read it. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, uh, when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So before we begin, I want to mention that Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, is well known among Bible commentators for how difficult to interpret it is. Um, St. Augustine, when talking about certain aspects of this passage in The City of God, said, I frankly confess that I do not know what Paul means. 
New Testament Greek scholar Marvin Vincent omits interpreting the passage in his four-volume lexical commentary, saying, I make no attempt uh, I, make, I attempt no interpretation of this passage as a whole, which I do not understand. And Greek, Greek linguist A.T. Robertson talks about how he despairs of the task of interpreting this passage, saying that it is in such a vague form that we can hardly clear it up. Yeah, this passage is well known for being very difficult to make sense of what Paul is saying. And if it's not clear why... It's going to be by the time we're done with this. But anyways, before we get started, I'll also give an overview of what I think about the passage. Though I wouldn't necessarily say some things with certainty. But I think that the day of the Lord, as it's referred to in this passage, is God's judgment against Jerusalem, and that the man of lawlessness is Nero, and that the rebellion is the Jewish revolt. And I think all that this happened in the first century. But even if I'm wrong about those things, either way, there is still significant reason to think that whatever Paul's talking about, it must have happened in the first century, even if it's not about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we'll get into why. So we are going to break this passage down bit by bit, almost verse by verse, and just go through it and try to find out what it's talking about. All right, so let's start with, what does Paul mean by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him and the day of the Lord? We have to make sure we understand what he's talking about with, when he says those things if we're going to understand the rest of the passage. Because if we're wrong about what he's saying when he's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord, then we'll probably be wrong about the rest of the passage. So there are three um, and another thing we want to figure out, whatever is Paul, Paul's talking about, why would the Thessalonians be alarmed by it? Because Paul is telling them to not be alarmed that the day of the Lord has already come. So there's three commonly considered ideas about what the day of the Lord could be referring to. Uh, and the first one is a pre-tribulation rapture. The second one is Christ's second coming right before the final judgment in the eternal state. And the third one is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So let's talk about these three possibilities. Let's start with uh, pre-tribulation rapture. So pr probably most of us here grew up uh, in the church, and because most of the modern American church believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, it's very easy to read this passage in light of that thinking without even thinking about it. It's, it's almost just natural. Now, if the Thessalonians had believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, it would make sense why they would be alarmed or shaken if they thought they missed it. But I can make a very strong case that neither Paul, ne neither Paul nor the Thessalonians ever believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. In fact, I highly doubt they had ever even heard of such an idea. The idea of a pre-tribulation rapture doesn't appear anywhere in Christian literature until the 18th century. Now that is not in and of itself conclusive proof against the pre-tribulation rapture, but it is a red flag. But I would say from, based on the other writings of Paul that it seems Paul definitely didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And since the Thessalonians learned their thoughts about the future from Paul, if Paul doesn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then the Thessalonians don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, you can actually put the slide back two slides because we're currently examining the pre-tribulation rapture. All right, so let's look at 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And we're going to see in this passage strong reason to think that Paul does not believe in the possibility of a pre-tribulation rapture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at those who have believed uh, because of the testimony to you was believed. Now let me explain in detail why this passage shows that Paul doesn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Paul, you know, the Thessalonians are being persecuted. They're being afflicted. And Paul is telling them that they are going to receive relief from their affliction and that those who are afflicting them are going to receive judgment. And he's saying that these two things are going to happen at the same time. They will be the same event. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And this this vengeance isn't like the vengeance of the, of the tribulation because he says in verse 9 that this vengeance is the punishment of eternal destruction. So the day the saints get relief from persecution is the day those who reject the gospel get the punishment of eternal destruction. Those two events are the same event. Paul says when he comes on that day, that's when the saints get relief, and that's when those who didn't believe the gospel get eternal destruction. But if there were a pre-tribulation rapture, that would be wrong. That would be false, because the saints would receive relief from their affliction first, years earlier. So it seems Paul does not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I would go on to say it seems Jesus didn't either. Let's look at John 5, verses 25 through 29. Oh, I copied and pasted the wrong verse. Hmm. Oh, well, I can read it from the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is saying that... Uh, that those who have believed the gospel and those who have not will be resurrected at the same time. He very clearly puts that idea forth. And that contradicts the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Because a pre-tribulation rapture necessitates that, the, uh, that those who have believed the gospel and died would be raised. Let's look at... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, and 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of the command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now, if the judgment of the, if the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous happens at the same time, and it happens before the end of time, then this passage is wrong, flat out wrong. A pre-tribulation rapture contradicts what Jesus says and what Paul says about the timeline. It can't happen because the righteous and the unrighteous are going to be resurrected and judged at the same time. Uh, 
I would say even stronger reason why there's no pre-tribulation rapture is because the great tribulation happened way before Christ's second coming. We don't, have a time, we don't have time to revisit it this week, but we saw two weeks ago that the great tribulation, which is described in Matthew 24, already happened. And it was from 66 AD to 70 AD. That's why Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation won't pass away till all these things take place. So the biggest reason there's no pre-tribulation rapture is because the tribulation is over and there was no rapture. So since there's no pre-tribulation rapture, it is not possible that that's what they were worried about. But what were they alarmed about then? Why, what were they worried about? So we've considered the idea of it being a pre-tribulation rapture. Let's consider the next idea, that it's the second coming of Christ. So based on the wording Paul uses the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, you know, it's, it's very possible he's talking about Christ's second coming. That's what it sounds like, right? But if he is, there's a few things that seem really strange. If they didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, why would they be worried they missed Christ's second coming? You'd think that if they were worried they missed Christ's second coming, Paul would say, uh, hello, you're still here. I'm still here, we still have pain and suffering, and the final judgment clearly hasn't happened. And you still have pain and suffering. You didn't miss the second coming. And you know, maybe they misunderstood the nature of the second coming and thought that it didn't have to do with uh, the eternal state, but you'd think if they misunderstood the nature of second, the second coming, instead of just telling them what has to happen first, Paul would correct their misunderstanding about the second coming. So I think the idea that this is talking about the second coming seems quite strange and rather unlikely. So the other commonly considered idea is that Paul is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So based on the wording Paul uses, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, he could be referring back to Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Let's look at uh, Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So this is pretty similar to how Paul words it in 2 Thessalonians 2. It is very possible that whatever this passage in Matthew 24 is talking about, that Paul's talking about the same thing. Uh, but what is this passage in Matthew 24 talking about? So the earlier part of Matthew 24 is definitely talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, like we saw two weeks ago. But I would say that there's good reason to think that these verses in Matthew 24 are also talking about 70 AD. So Jesus is talking about him coming on the clouds of heaven with glory and power. But I think that's a first century event, and let me tell you why. Let's look at Matthew 26, verses 62 through 64. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you that from now on, from first century on, from 30 AD on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the high priest was alive in 30 AD. And Jesus told him that he would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And you, that, I believe that's a reference back to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, coming on the clouds isn't a coming turf, it's a coming to the Father to sit at his right hand. 
at, with power and glory, which happened in the first century. So th there's really good reason to think that Matthew 30 through 31 happened in the first century. And I would say also that the, the being gathered together, um, the gathering of the elect by the messengers, because the word translated angels just means messengers, is the going forth of the gospel. Um, so again, there is good, good possibility that whatever Paul is talking about, he's talking about the same thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, 30 through 31. And there's really good odds that whatever Jesus was talking about uh, happened in the first century because Jesus told the high priest that it would, and it was probably him going to the Father and the going forth of the gospel. By the way, I do want to just point out real quick that not all coming of Christ has to do with the second coming. Let's look at Revelation 2, verse 16. Jesus says this to one of the seven churches, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Christ's second coming isn't a coming against the church, it's a coming for the church. So the coming of Christ mentioned here isn't the second coming of Christ. And also, the second coming of Christ is not contingent on whether or not humans repent, but this coming is. So not all, not all times in Scripture where the term coming is used uh, about Christ have to do with the second coming. So there's, there's good possibility that, uh, that what Paul is talking about here is when he says the day of the Lord is the destruction of Jerusalem. But wait. Why would they be worried about God's judgment against the Jews who were persecuting Christians? They're suffering persecution. Why would it be any concern to them that God destroys Jerusalem and, uh, and you know, pays back the Jews who are persecuting Christians? Why would that alert them? Why would that be cause for concern? So I, I think there's at least one good reason why that would be cause for concern. So in the first part of Matthew 24... Jesus warns Christians that when judgment comes against Jerusalem, they need to flee. They need to evacuate. They need to leave the city so that they don't get caught up in the judgment. And we know from history, like we saw two weeks ago, that Christians did flee the city. There was a mass exodus of the church leaving Jerusalem in 66 A.D., But Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians around 51 or 52 AD. So the Thessalonians, hearing that the day of the Lord had come, but not hearing any news that Christians had fled or escaped, could have thought, oh no, God's judgment against Jerusalem came and none of the Christians made it out. None of our brothers and sisters in Christ heeded God's warning and escaped. This is terrible. That would have been sad news if that's what they thought. That would have been heartbreaking news. So I think it's plausible that the destruction of Jerusalem could be what they would be alerted about, what they would be worried about. Because they wouldn't have heard news of the Christians fleeing Jerusalem since the Christians hadn't yet fleed Jerusalem. And that should be something that they would want to hear if they were going to hear that Jerusalem got destroyed. You know, if there was a modern city that was going to receive the judgment of God, and I heard that none of the Christians left and they all died, that would be sad news. So the idea that the Thessalonians were worried that the great tribulation had come upon Jerusalem before any Christians had a chance to escape like God told them to honestly makes more sense than if they were worried they had missed Christ's second coming. And in my opinion, that's most likely what they were worried about. And this view is the view we're going to focus on in the rest of uh, the sermon. All right, now let's go through all the difficult parts. 
All right, unless the rebellion comes first. What is Paul talking about? Let's read, second, let's read verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Uh, the, re- the rebellion comes first and the... Okay, I messed up on my copying and pasting again. But anyways, the rebellion comes first. Now, a number of other translations translate the word rebellion as apostasy. ESV is the only one that I know of that uses the word rebellion. Uh, NASB uses apostasy, and New King James uses falling away. So there are two common thoughts about what this could be talking about. People who interpret the whole passage as being about the future tend to interpret it as being a falling away of the church. That's actually the main reason we're addressing this passage. Uh, is because it's not a falling away of the church. The other way people tend to see this passage is that it's the rebellion of the Jews, or the apostasy or rebellion of the Jews against Rome in 66 AD. So the Greek word used here is uh, apostasia. And Strong's Dictionary describes it as a falling away, defection, or apostasy. Now, historically, the word can be used to apply to a revolt, either political or religious. And the Greek word apostasia is actually the same word Josephus used to describe the Jews revolting against Rome, which, you know, was the start of the Great Tribulation. So if the passage is talking about God's judgment against Jerusalem, then the apostasy or the rebellion would have to be the Jewish revolt against Rome. God's judgment against Jerusalem, which came through Rome, wasn't going to happen until the Jews revolted against Rome, which inspired, you know, Rome to do something about it. So that's what I think the apostasy is most likely referring to. That's what the rebellion is. So who's the man of lawlessness, and what does Paul mean that he takes his seat in the temple? Let's read uh, verse 4. The rebellion comes first, uh, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I do want to say, when it says, so that he takes his seat in the temple, it doesn't necessarily mean that he'll actually take his seat in the temple, though it could mean that. But the Greek word, uh, osta, the Greek word here that gets translated, so that, when it's followed by a verb in the infinitive tense, can be used to talk about having the mere intent to do something. That's the case in Luke 29, Luke 4, 29 through 30. Let's look at that real quick. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So this is talking about Jesus was out uh, preaching, and there were some Jews who wanted to throw him off a cliff. They brought him to the edge of the cliff so that, and it's the same Greek word used, oesta, but the word could, the word could that's here in the ESV does not actually show up in the literal Greek. If it were translated literally, it would read, so that they throw him down the cliff. But we know that they didn't throw him down the cliff. It's describing intent to do so. It's just one of the things you can do in Greek. So, but again, it also could be talking about someone literally sitting in the temple, but it could be talking about mere intent to do so. Just someone who's very arrogant and strongly believes that they're God. But if this is talking about someone actually, you know, being in the temple, sitting in the seat of God and proclaiming themselves to be God, then it would almost certainly have to be talking about the Roman general who later became emperor, Titus. Because the temple is gone. 
The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and right before it was destroyed by Titus, Titus's soldier offered sacrifices to Titus as emperor worship in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. And that's why a number of people think that the man of lawlessness was probably Titus. Another popular idea is that the man of lawlessness was Nero. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one of those is true. I think they're both possible, even though I kind of lean a bit more towards the idea of it being Nero. Nero did, in fact, proclaim himself as God. He claimed to be the god Apollo incarnate, and he demanded that others worship him. And if you know much about his personal life, he was quite a lawless person. But we don't need to get into his personal life. So the man of lawlessness could be Titus or Nero. Um, So what is restraining him now? Let's talk about that. Paul says, you know what is restraining him now. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And do you know what is restraining him now? So So that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So this is my biggest reason for thinking that even if it's not talking about Nero, and even if it's not about the destruction of Jerusalem, it has to be about something that happened in the first century. You can't be restrained without being alive. And the man of lawlessness is a man. The man of lawlessness is human. And you don't, humans don't live 2,000 years. So the man of lawlessness was alive in the first century, and he was a human, which means he's dead. Except it's, it's not 100% that simple. This passage is complicated. There's strong reason to think that the man of lawlessness was alive in Paul's day, but the idea isn't 100% clear. So why is that? Even though the ESV translates this passage as, you know what is restraining him now, the word him is not actually used in this passage. No pronoun is used to describe what's being restrained. Not him, not it, not anything. No pronoun is used. The ESV and the NASB both put the word him in there because they feel it's implied by the text, though the NKJV does not put a pronoun there. Now, I'm not an expert in Greek, but it, it wasn't uncommon to omit a pronoun if the speaker felt that the pronoun could be inferred. To see an example of this, let's look at Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. So, uh, so this, I, I picked the NASB for a reason. The NASB, t- sometimes there's words that they put in the English that weren't in the original Greek, because in Greek you can do things like omit pronouns that we... We generally avoid doing that in English. Um, And when the NASB adds a word that wasn't in the original Greek, they put it in italics so that you know that it wasn't in the original Greek, but it's implied by the original Greek, and it kind of has to be there for a translation to English because we don't omit pronouns very often. But there's a number of languages that omit pronouns, and sometimes English speakers omit pronouns. So anyways, if you ever are reading the NASB and you see a word in italics, it means it's not there in the original Greek. And pronouns frequently get dropped in Greek. But not always. They still use them sometimes. Anyways, let's read this verse from Roman, this passage from Romans 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we may too walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, now notice the word him is in italics. The pronoun him isn't actually used in the Greek. It just says, uh, for if we have become united with. United with what? United with who? United with the last subjects used in the sentence, because you can do that in Greek, and it wasn't uncommon. It's in multiple passages in the scripture. But there's also places in this very passage in Romans 6 where Paul does include, include the pronoun him. So, you know, Greek. 
But let's keep reading it to see it again. Uh, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Again, this hymn is in italics. This pronoun was not used in the original Greek. The original Greek would read, for we were crucified with in order that... And you're like, what? Who were we crucified with? You can do this in Greek. You can omit pronouns if if the speaker feels that the reader or the hearer can infer what's being talked about. And it would be just the last subject used in the sentence, I believe. Um, But yeah, so that's an example of that. But also you can use pronouns if you choose to, so. But anyways, it's quite likely that that's what Paul is doing here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he is likely saying that the man of lawlessness was already being restrained in the first century. But I I just wanted to point this out because not everyone thinks that because of the lack of the pronoun. But there's more reasons than just that to think that the man of lawlessness was being restrained in the first century. The pronoun it is also not actually used in verse 7. No pronoun is used in verse 7. So in verse 6, it says that the man of lawlessness is being restrained, him is being restrained. And in verse 7, having just talked about the mystery of lawlessness, he says, only he who now restrains it. But the it isn't there either. So it's, it's just him who now restrains. So if you're going to use, if, if you're going to make the logical conclusion that because the pronoun him isn't there, that he wasn't talking about the man of lawlessness being restrained, since Paul doesn't use the pronoun it either, you should also not think that the mystery of lawlessness is being restrained. So sorry that this is going to get complicated, but, uh, but if the man of lawlessness wasn't being restrained and the mystery of lawlessness wasn't being restrained, what on earth is the restrainer restraining? And what does it have to do with anything? (laughs) So that being said, I just don't... There's strong reason to think that the man of lawlessness was being restrained in the first century. And if that's the case, he was alive. And if he was alive then, he's not alive now. Not only that, but the Greek word mystery here just means something that is secret or hidden. So since at the time of Paul's writing this, the man of lawlessness hadn't been revealed yet, there's good reason to think that the mystery of lawlessness is the man of lawlessness. And there's no solid reason to insist that it's something different. But because it's common enough to omit pronouns in ancient Greek, and because Paul left uh, the pronouns out for both the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness, I'd say there is strong reason to think that both of them Or if they're one thing, the one of them were being currently restrained in Paul's day. Which would mean the man of lawlessness was alive in the first century. I'm actually going to talk about this just a little bit more. So just in case that's not convincing, and I would hope that it is, if a person insists that the man of lawlessness is not being restrained in this passage, but the mystery of lawlessness is, then it starts to get rather strange. Because that means that the mystery of lawlessness getting restrained in the first century is somehow preventing the man of lawlessness from being revealed sooner than he otherwise would have. And that honestly doesn't make sense. Most people who think the mystery of lawlessness was being restrained, but the man of lawlessness wasn't because they think he hadn't been born yet, tend to think that the mystery of lawlessness is the sin nature and the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. But there are major issues with that idea. Major issues. First off, the text implies that the man of lawlessness was being restrained just as much as it implies the mystery of lawlessness was being restrained. Secondly, why would the sin nature being restrained prevent the man of lawlessness from being born? We can all agree that the Holy Spirit was restraining sin in the first century. The Holy Spirit's restraining sin in every century. But even though the Holy Spirit was restraining sin, people who were just as proud and just as lawless as the man of lawlessness were still being born. 
The man of lawlessness is someone who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. But even though the Holy Spirit was restraining sin in the first century, there were still men proclaiming themselves to be God in the first century. Like Titus in the temple. Titus went into the Holy of Holies and got worshipped as a God. The Holy Spirit restraining sin didn't keep that from happening. And that sounds like a literal fulfillment of this passage. So why on earth would the Holy Spirit restraining sin, which didn't keep lawless men from, who proclaimed to be God from being born, why on earth would it keep the man of lawlessness from being born? That Paul's trying to make a logical argument, that, and that makes no sense. Also, if the Holy Spirit actually stopped restraining sin, everyone would be the man of lawlessness. If you're a human, you'd be the man of lawlessness if the Holy Spirit stopped restraining sin. Because that's how the sin nature works. We'd all be claiming to be God. And lastly, nowhere in the entire Bible is it even thought that there is an implication that God will remove his spirit from the earth. The idea goes against the grain of the entire rest of the Bible. But anyways, there is strong reason to think that the, the man of lawlessness was alive and being restrained in the first century, which is strong reason to think that the whole thing probably took place in the first century, whether it's Nero or Titus or not. So who's the restrainer? Uh, if the man of lawlessness was Nero, then the restrainer was probably Emperor Claudius. So restraining can also be translated to hold back. And Claudius was, in a real sense, holding back Nero from becoming emperor. Because Claudius was the Roman emperor before Nero. So by dint of being current emperor, he's literally preventing Nero from becoming emperor. That's how that works. You can't have more than one. One's enough. So once Claudius was removed from office, Nero ascended to power. And you know, in verse 6, Paul says that you know what is restraining him. It, that could mean they just know what or they, in some sense, know who. Um, but they would have known who Claudius was because Claudius was the current emperor at the time of Paul writing this. So if the man of lawlessness was Nero, then I would say the restrainer is probably Claudius. Um, it's also possible that the restrainer was an angel or a heavenly being. We know from the book of Daniel that spiritual warfare of angels in heaven affects the fate and outcomes of kingdoms on earth. So uh, that's, that's a whole possibility. All right. Whom Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of coming. What does that mean? Let's read verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this passage is difficult to interpret, and, uh, and it's difficult for me to say exactly what this is talking about. If the man of lawlessness is Titus, then I just don't know what this is referring to. Uh, but if the man of lawlessness was Nero, then this passage is in some sense fitting for how Nero died. Uh, Nero died during the time of the Great Tribulation. So the Great Tribulation was from 66 AD to 70 AD. And Nero died in 68 AD when he committed suicide because of a military coup. So he died during the time of the Great Tribulation. And also elsewhere in the scriptures, Christ's word is described as the sword coming from his mouth. And in Nero's suicide, he did in fact die from a sword wound. So if the man of lawlessness is Nero this could be describing his death or how he died. All right, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. What does that mean? What is Paul talking about? Uh, let's read verses 9 through 12. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who do not believe in the truth but add pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, so I don't know with certainty what this sentence is referring to, but I'm going to mention two possibilities. If Titus is the man of lawlessness, then this could be referring to the miracles of Vespasian. So Vespasian uh, was Titus's dad, and Vespasian worked closely with Titus uh, for the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And Vespasian was believed to be able to miraculously heal people and to have miraculously healed a blind man and a lame man. There are historical accounts of Vespasian healing uh, a blind man and a lame man that are documented by three ancient historians, uh, Tacticus, uh, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. So whether or not those miracles were fake or demonically empowered, I don't know. But either way, they would qualify as false signs, and either way, there are people who believed they really happened. And those people were further and deceived into emperor worship because of that. So, yeah, whether Vespasian actually healed anyone, lots of people believed he did. So that if, um, if Titus is the man of lawlessness, then this is probably referring to the miraculous powers of Vespasian, whether they were demonically powered or fake. Um, and if the man of lawlessness was Nero, then maybe the false signs have to do with the false claims that he rose from the dead. So in the first century, it was a very popular belief that Nero would return after his death. Like, you can, you can look in the history books. People believed it. And there were various imposters who claimed to be Nero resurrected who deceived numerous people. Like, people were actually deceived by this. People thought Nero rose from the dead and came back. Also, since the beast in Revelation is probably Rome, it's not strange that the man of lawlessness would be a Roman emperor. And John says that whatever nation the beast is, it gets its power from Satan. So that power is military power, political power that's coming from Satan. So if the power Paul is talking about here is that kind of power, military and political power, then it wouldn't be strange for the false signs to be fake miracles, which is a fake resurrection. But anyways, those are two plausible possibilities for that. So this is a difficult passage, and we've attempted to see what it means. So I've got some closing comments. But there's probably five more minutes left uh, for those who are going down to get the kids. Um, so I don't know with certainty what Paul is talking about. But there's good reason to consider the idea that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because I don't, I don't know what else the Thessalonians would be worried about. But even if he's not, either way, odds are whatever he's talking about already happened in the first century. Because the man of lawlessness was alive and being restrained in the first century. And men don't live 2,000 years. Also, even if Paul is talking about the second coming... Uh, before the final, like right before the final judgment, these two events still could have happened in the first century. Even if Paul's talking about the second coming, these two events still could have happened in the first century. Let me explain why. Elijah also has to come before the day of the Lord. But that doesn't mean his coming will be right before the day of the Lord. Let's look at Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their children uh, to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So whatever the great and awesome day of the Lord is referring to, it very well could be the same thing Paul's talking about when he uses the term the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 2. But the coming of Elijah already happened, and it happened in the first century. Let's look at Matthew 11, verses 12 through 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he was Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And now we see this confirmed again in Matthew 17, 10 through 12. And the disciples asked, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Are they talking about the same thing? Why not? I mean, they could. Whatever the day of the Lord in Malachi is talking about, Elijah came in the first century. So even if Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ, since the man of lawlessness was being restrained in the first century, there's really good odds that these happened in the first century anyways. The last thing I want to say is that no matter what Paul is talking about in regards to the apostasy, even if I'm completely wrong, he assuredly is not talking about born-again Christians falling away from Christ without returning. You can be absolutely certain of that. Let's look at 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Let's also look at 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. So whatever this is talking about, even if I'm way off, it is not talking about born-again Christians falling away. Period. It's indisputable. So anyways, in conclusion, I just want to say again, I don't know with certainty what Paul is talking about. But there's very good reason to consider the idea that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And even if he's not, Either way, odds are whatever he's talking about happened in the first century. Let's close in prayer and have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness and that uh, no matter what the future holds, you will be good to us and you will keep redeeming people. We thank you for your love for us and that you are always faithful and that you will protect us to the end. Amen. Today's communion meditation is called The Ultimate Good Deal. You know, Black Friday just happened. (laughs) Teresa found some cute clothes for Jeremiah. 50% off the clearance price. But Romans 6 verse 23 has a much better deal. Romans 6 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, sometimes we get tempted to feel like our sin isn't that bad. But... Sin deserves eternal separation from God. But God, being as gracious as he is, freely offers the best deal that has ever been offered by anyone ever. He offers to pay the price that we could never finish paying and to save us from our enslavement to sin and to freely give us the status of a person who has always obeyed the Father perfectly in every situation. Praise the Lord. 